Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Jay. And I'm Ryan. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. Do Rastafarians believe in a black Jesus? Was Bob Marley religious? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Thank you for joining us today on episode five of Religiously Literate. We're halfway through season one, so we're really excited because we've stuck with this for this long. Um, and people well, are listening. We were always going to stick with it for a while. Like, you, why are you doubting us? <laughs> okay, fine. We we stuck with it, but now we have listeners in like how many countries? Four? Four, Yeah. Yeah, so that's cool. So shout out to all of our international listeners. Not that we don't love our American listeners, but it's yeah. pretty cool to get people. Maybe we'll get five countries now once we release the fifth episode, like a country an episode. That would be cool. That would be pretty slick. So. Um, but anyway, on this episode, we're going to talk about a religion that is probably not something that you thought you would hear about on this podcast. We're going to talk about Rastafarians today. Um, and I'm really excited about this. Uh, we moved it. We originally had this episode slated for season two, and I was like, I want to talk about this now. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so Rastas, um, there are approximately a million worldwide. I think the numbers on this are a little a little wishy-washy um, because of the countries where Rastafarians are most uh, populous. Um, but this Rastafarians are kind of part of a sort of loose tradition that's not super centrally organized, although there are some uh, little denominations that we'll talk about later. But Rastafarians, you probably know from Bob Marley, from reggae music, uh, marijuana, and primarily Jamaica. Um, I think a lot of people associate Rastafarians with Jamaica, um, but they're also closely linked with Ethiopia, and we'll get into why that is later. The history of the Rastafarian movement is really interesting, and there are a lot of factors that are going on. In some ways, it's like very much a product of its time, a product of Jamaica. I, I don't think that this same movement could have happened outside of the Caribbean. Um, mm -hmm. And so just keep that in mind. But anyway, there are four main founders who are associated with the, the Rastafari movement, and that is Leonard Percival Howell, Joseph Nathaniel Hibbert, Robert Hens, and Henry Archibald Dunkley. And in the wake of the crowning of uh, Haley Selassie, which we will talk more about in a second, uh, they were kind of among the first to claim that Jesus had returned in the body of the newly crowned prince. Arab emperor and um, they the key parts of their message was that he was going to bring an end to white domination and the exploitation of black people around the world and they were kind of ministers who would be out on the streets saying this message particularly end of white domination and, and uh, black exploitation which really resonated with Jamaicans at the time and that's kind of why people were interested in them but they what time period are we talking about the time period being the um 1920s and 30s. Okay. Okay. Um, because a lot of people were kind of over Jamaica had been exploited by the West. People wanted like have those African roots, but, but I will say they weren't unique in the sense that there are a lot of ministers. Uh, they call them like uh, 
front house ministers or, or storefront ministers who would be out in front of storefronts like yelling at people trying to convert them and so these four men set out because of that specific message um but part of the reason that they kind of arrived arrived at this conclusion that it would be that his crowning would bring the end of white domination exploitation of black people around the world is really embedded in kind of four main things uh the first reason is kind of local uh jamaica's religious culture at the time taught that a liberator would stop oppression and the marginalization of blacks everywhere so people this is something people were looking for and so to hear that it's like oh yes you know so that the timing mm-hmm. was really perfect in that moment uh, there was kind of the general worldwide belief that the african diaspora saw Ethiopia as a symbol of black identity and liberation. And this is probably because Ethiopia is one of the only countries who had not been conquered by the West. It remained completely uh, autonomous. Um, and it, it had all this history, particularly with the Abyssinian Empire. So people just have, I think for a long time, but particularly at this time, were would be in the 1920s and 30s, resonating Ethiopia as the the place of black liberation and kind of strength. Uh, then there was the, the Garvey movement, which I'll let you talk a little bit about more about. Um, yeah. So Marcus Garvey, which like, if you know anything about early 20th century, African-American history, the name should sound really familiar. If you've ever heard of the Harlem Renaissance, he was really instrumental in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but He was the founder of the United Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, um, which did a lot of things for African Americans in the early 20th 20th century. Um, He was from Jamaica. He was born and raised in Jamaica, came to the United States. Um, And he was really instrumental in this idea of this sort of movement of back to Africa. And so he really wanted black Americans to be able to return to Africa or that they, they should return to Africa. Um, And it's all sort of wrapped up in this idea that Africans in the United States have been held down by the system, by, you know, years of slavery and then, you know, segregation and Jim Crow laws and the whole mess of reconstruction. Um, And so he wanted all Africans to move back to Africa or all Africans in America to move back to Africa. And he also sort of championed this idea that like black of black excellence, which is something that we're kind of seeing come around again. Now Um, this idea that black people are, you know, have things to be proud of um, and that the white power structures that be, hold that down. And that's part of like why he wanted Africans to go back to Africa. Um, and so because he thought that Africans in America couldn't ever adequately integrate into white society, it was kind of pointless because this, the cards were stacked against them in his eyes and there was really no point to it. Um, and so if you've ever seen the, so the pan African flag, um, it showed up a lot in, Um, The Ferguson protests in 2014, it was seen by counter protesters at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Um, It's a three color uh, flag with black, green and red stripes. And Marcus Garvey was instrumental in creating that flag because he thought that the African people needed a flag 
um, to represent themselves as autonomous people. Um, and it's, it was in reaction to this horribly racist song about how black people don't have a flag. They're the only nation with no flag. And he was like, well, we're not going to do that. Um, and so he was really instrumental in this idea of going back to Africa. And part of this was also this line that's been attributed to him. And I don't know of anywhere that I found where it was like, you know, he said it on this day or he wrote it in this letter or whatever, or said it at this event. But he has a quote attributed to him to where he says that um, the African people should look to Africa for the crowning of a king to know that your redemption is near. And so, like you were saying before with the um, coronation of Haile Selassie, um, that was sort of seen as this moment in time. And that's sort of how he becomes incorporated into the Rastafari movement. Yeah. And I, I will also say just kind of like summarization takeaways, <clears throat> the Pan-Africanism and particularly the folks on Ethiopia, yeah. uh, Black Pride, repatriation or going back to Africa, self-reliance. Those are the key aspects that people who would then develop the Rastafari movement took. And even today, those are key elements um, in, in the religion. So I think that those directly helped influence the movement. And then the last one was right. kind of a global con uh, rise of Black consciousness after World War I. Um, and so this includes the Harlem Renaissance, the indigenous and Norse movements in Haiti, Afro-Cubanism in Cuba, movements among Black Brazilians, um, Black people in France, Paris, or Paris being part of France, and West Africa, mm -hmm. and also the beginnings of pushing toward liberation and independence movements across Africa. So all of this is kind of bubbling among Black people, and, and so these all really influence what would go on to become the Rastafarian movement, um, as, as well as the epitome being the crowning of the emperor in Ethiopia. I will say that the four founders came to their conclusions kind of independently, and hmm. they all had significant significance rather in the movement. Mm -hmm. But Howell ultimately kind of becomes the forefront. He gets most of the attention. And when scholars are doing work about the history of the movement, you really only have information about him. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the other four people, but I really think it's important for to talk about the crowning of the emperor of Ethiopia. So I'll let you talk about that. Okay, yeah. Um, so like we mentioned before, um, Emperor Haile Selassie, he was crowned emperor of Ethiopia in 1930. His name was Prince Rastafari Makonan. So that's where this term Rastafari comes from, Rastafarianism. It all comes back to that, to his name. Um, he takes on this title of Haile Selassie, which means power of the Trinity, um, which is really interesting because he was a member of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And there was no real question about that. He never converted to Rastafarianism. Um, although I think he had a lot of respect for the movement um, because later on during his, uh, during his reign, I guess, um, he denoted a part of Ethiopia for Rastafarians to come and to live. Um, and so he gives them this plot of land. So I think he had some respect for the Rastafarian movement, um, but he never converted, which I thought was really interesting. Um, he's like, sure. You want to think I'm the second coming of Jesus right on, but I'm going to keep on doing my Ethiopian Orthodox thing. Mm. Um, 
And so, like we said, you know, before some Rastafarians believe or believed that he was the second coming of Christ, which he then dies in the late 1970s. And so that becomes somewhat problematic um, because if he is the second coming of Jesus and we stick to, you know, the loosely Christian um, understandings of the end of the world based on um, Rastafarianism, like he shouldn't just die. There's a lot of things that are supposed to happen. Um, But so then it becomes this question of, you know, some Rastafarians will say that he is a representation of Jah incarnate or God incarnate, which well, Jah is this um, is the term for God in Rastafari and Rastafari. And um, so there's this question of, is he Jah incarnate or is he just a human prophet, like akin to Jesus? Um, But he is in addition to sort of being this crowned black emperor in Africa and sort of, fulfilling this questionable prophecy from, you know, maybe Marcus Garvey, maybe from some of these other four folks. Um, He, his, he eventually visits Jamaica in the late 1960s and 1966 and the 60s in Jamaica were a really sort of interesting time because in 1962, Jamaica gained its independence from the United Kingdom. And, So Jamaica is able to sort of exert itself as an independent nation. So it invites Haile Selassie to come to Jamaica. He comes to Jamaica and it's this massive event, which is influential for not only Rastafari, but for um, reggae, for Bob Marley, because Bob Marley is tangentially connected to um, Selassie's visit to Jamaica. Um, And so... So, yeah. Going back to the four founders, as I said, Howell, the most is written about him. So, honestly, I don't know about the other three. I know that they have followings, and in some ways they influence parts of the movement, but I couldn't tell you what that looks like. <laughs> in terms of Howell, <laughs> though, he and his followers lived on a commune called uh, Pinnacle, and there they were, for the most part, self-sustained, self-sufficient. So, uh, they farmed. Music was a huge part of their community. Um, they had a lot of communal drumming where people would come together, play drums and dance. Like music was something they did every day. Um, and then they sold uh, marijuana, which in Jamaica is called ganja. Uh, so they sold that to the outside community, which is how that was their cash crop and how they made money. And although they were so oh. sustainable, they often um, they sold... Uh, the the ganja so that for things that they couldn't do in the community that then they could still interact outside uh but it is illegal and mm-hmm. the government from it the beginning continues to be illegal and it continues to be illegal um but the government from the beginning had some i guess suspicions about this movement because part of it embedded in this like black liberation was we don't want to be ruled by the UK anymore. You know, this is the white man's ideas. We reject this. And so government entities were not down with them from the beginning. And from the beginning, there was a lot of harassment going on, but this 
when they found out, particularly because they were like right outside of Kingston. So when local authorities found that the city was being flooded with ganja and the source of it, they raided the commune. And the first two raids, Howell and some of his followers were imprisoned. The second time he was sent to a mental institution and he was there for a while. Um, and then when he finally got out, he and some of his followers moved to St. Catherine and he lived there until his death in 1981. But uh, that really kind of set the tone, I think, for some things that were going on. And and that later on, when we talk about the houses, there's a couple, there's at least one house that also maintains a commune. And I think that Howe was a big influence in that. But at the time, so like Howe had followers, other had followers, there are a lot of factions one of the most popular factions that has had the most influence in the movement today is called the House of Black Youth Faith, or sorry, House of Youth Black Faith. And these were kind of the younger Rastas who were, they really resonated with the idea and the message of rejecting the colonial government. Uh, they were also like really, really radical. And they were, so the first movement, the kind of the elders, the original founders, they really, although they talked about rejecting the government and, you know, Black liberation, they were a part of a movement of revivalist preachers who emphasized, and this is actually still true today, if you like go to particularly Baptist churches or even within Black churches, there are often revivals where you go and you can be revived in the Lord. And there's emphasis on, on coming back and like, being born again, and if you've been lost, this is a time to rejuvenate and, and, and find the, the path again. And so baptism, um, having meetings to gain new followers, and alternative healing were all part of this kind of original movement of the founders. And the youth were like, we reject all of that. That's not what we're about. This is a whole new thing. So they got rid of all of those aspects of the movement. And they instead were more about uprooting the system and being rebellious. And this came in the form of refusing to participate in politics. They, from moving from just selling ganja, they started smoking it and it gained the sacred aspect um, and ritual status that it has now. Uh, And they also started the tradition of dreadlocks. And some of this was so that they could become dreaded by those who interacted with them but they became very uh strict about it so when it came their idea of dreadlocks meant that you did nothing to the to the hair you just let it mat it itself and this would represent strength and courage um so as you can see like dreadlocks are still a part of the movement now this dates back to the house of uh youth black faith they also didn't help with tensions with the government Uh, So at this time, as they were starting to get going, and this is again, like 30s, 40s, um, the government finds any reason to harass them. And so when they would have meetings, the police, local police would be like, oh, there's a meeting going on. So they'd show up and they'd raid it and search them. They would often be beat by the police. They'd have their hair cut. They'd be put in jail. And this went on for a really long time. So one of the main leaders in the community, I believe his name is Mortimer Plano. He 
approached Dr. Arthur Lewis, who was the principal of the University College of the West Indies, which is now called the University of West Indies. And he asked him to do a study on Rastas because there is this big, like, this perception that they're negative and they're bad. And he really wanted to change that. So he had this guy, you know, do the study and he sent out three students. They only spent two weeks with the Rasta community, but they published an ethnographic study, which I know. Aww. Yeah. Um, and this actually helped. <laughs> two weeks? Well, I know like in general, horrible ethnographic study, but yes. these two weeks, what they were able, the work that they were able to produce actually helped change the tide for Rastafarians okay. and helped right. the Jamaican society better understand the community. Because I think because the youth had been so radical, didn't want to participate in politics, you know, just smoked ganja. There was this perception that they mm-hmm. were lazy and um, just wanted to cause trouble. But when people actually went to the communities and saw what they were about, it's like, these people are really peaceful. Like they are trying to obtain uh, a connection with God. Like they're not trying to hurt anybody. Like, you know, gave a full account of what was going on. People were like, oh, they're not so bad. And so this really helps start to change the tide of their perception, which then has helped with reggae and Bob Marley, which we'll talk about later. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the background history of the Rastafarians. Let's talk about some beliefs and practices of Rastafarians. The two kind of main components, I think, are Rastology and Livity. And Rastology is basically Rastafarian ideas, and Livity is cultural and religious practices, which is where we'd be talking about Livity. I think that it's important to note that within the world of Rastafari, there is no clergy or really central leadership. So while there are movements and things that people believe, it's all really based on the individual community. And then Ryan mentioned this earlier, but Ja is kind of the key component, the the God figure or God in the movement. And this is something that was new to me. I didn't know this in my research. It makes still sense now. But Ja is short for Jehovah and Jehovah being the word that comes from the Bible for God. So Supreme Being, when they're talking about Jah, they really just, I think it's Jamaican Patois for Jehovah. Yeah, and um, um, Jehovah is the Germanization of the Hebrew. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, so that's why there's J's in there instead of Y's. I see. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what do you know about some... So some, some lividity. The, Let me use the vocabulary. Lividity. Are we skipping to practices? Or are we going to stay on rastology? Let's do them both. <laughs> that is not an answer to my question, but okay, we're going to go with rastology. 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 Okay. <laughs> so, so one of the um, key beliefs uh, surrounding jaw is this idea of I and I, which at first, when I was researching for this episode, I was very much like, what in the world is this talking about? And as you all know from previous episodes, because you're listening to all of our episodes, um, I list, I look at a lot of YouTube videos to research um, because I like to hear people talk about what they do themselves. And sometimes, even though I typically avoid the comments, I scroll through the comments, just see what's going on down there. And this phrase comes up constantly in uh, 
comments on YouTube videos. So if you go to our show notes, because you should, because they're really good, um, and watch any of the videos we suggest, scroll through some of the comments on them. I guarantee you'll find people using this phrase. And so I was not really sure what this meant for a long time. And then I was doing some more research and it comes to find out that it's really sort of this idea that is kind of similar to what we talked about in the sick episode, which is episode three, um, where we're talking about this idea that the divine is in all of us. But in Rasta, it's a little more clearly defined. So there is a part of God or jaw in every single person. Like there's a little portion of jaw. And so it's not that like in like when we talked about um, Sikhism, you know, this idea that creation and the divine are all kind of the same thing and are all connected and you're like one with the divine. This is more like you are separate from the divine, but part of the divine is in you. Mm. Um, And that's part of the description for how or part of the way that some people understand the importance of Haile Selassie is that he was instrumental in making that definition. But I don't really understand how he did that because he was, like we said before, Ethiopian Orthodox. He was never Rasta. So he wasn't trying to like come to terms with this idea. So yeah, there's that. So, okay. So there's two components to it. So first of all, it's the way, because after his name, there is one, um, right. Cause he was the first, but this can, you can read this two ways. You can read it as the one, the first, or you can read it as an I. And so that, I think in a Rastafarian context, it's read as I. Mm-hmm. And so that I, if he is the divine, that I is part of the divine, but that I, because you get to see it, is a part of you. And I think that's how it came from him. So I don't that think he's... the most meta it, explanation. <laughs> I don't think he had anything to do with it, but I think that people right. read into it. And I think okay. um, your observation of it being meta is... Um, when he was crowned emperor and with all again the context of the, of the what was going on people wanted to find religious meaning in him being and crowned all of that right and everything that was associated with him and so it becomes very easy to manipulate well i don't want to say manipulate because that sounds judgmental but to take to insight see meaning and to see find meaning, meaning in things, in things. yeah um, and so when I was, I mean, I had to read that sentence like three times to make sure I was reading it correctly. <laughs> but yeah, in the reading that I did, it's like people see it, like in a Western context, it's read as one or the first, but in a Rastafarian context, it's read as I, and that represents the divine in both him and you. So we've talked about this idea of the overarching white power structure and that is given a term, it's called Babylon, which this relates back to Judaism and the Babylonian captivity. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Babylonians destroyed the second temple, if I'm correct, right? Yes. I think that sounds right. right. Look at me. Well, I could be wrong, but I think that sounds right. I also, I think it's, (laughs) but it's more, yeah, because the Jews were exiled from Babylon. Right, Um, right. And then also, like, this is a little bit of a double entendre because it's, Actually, I don't. I don't know if the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Now I'm like second guessing myself. But I do know the Jews were exiled. I'm gonna Google from it. Babylon. That's the first meaning. But then the second meaning, um, which I learned this in my research, is that in the New Testament, 
um, Babylon is referred to many times, I think, in Paul's letters, but he's specifically talking about the Roman Empire where Christians were persecuted. So Babylon has this very negative connotation of people who have suffered and have been destroyed and things like that. Um, and so that's I, that negative connotation really resonates with Rastafari. It was the Romans that destroyed the second temple. My bad. Okay, I'm glad that I backtracked that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're better on that stuff than me. <laughs> I mean, but hey, but the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, so I wasn't okay, totally fair, wrong. Fair. So take that. There we go. Um, but so, so this idea of Babylon or this term Babylon is sort of applied wholesale to the white political and economic structure too, to some degree. I mean, it's kind of this idea to like, or with this purpose of reminding black people of their heritage and to get them to fight that black power or that black, the white power structure. Yeah. I I will say for me, for me, I got the context that, or the sense that Babylon has like very specific context, but depending on the context, it can mean, Mm -hmm. Uh, white or European slash Western culture, capitalism, right? Or just yeah, like white people in general. <laughs> because, yeah. and I say yeah. that with some hesitation because I got like oppression is really I think at the root of it, which was a yeah, of, yeah, oh, colonialism. Yeah. So it seems to be the yeah. context, but really yeah. it's a stand-in for uh, white culture, society, colonialism, oppression, white people, and capitalism. Because uh, Rastafari seemed to be very anti-capitalism because of the exploitation that it has caused right. or actually causes. Yeah. Um, and so on the flip side of that, um, the term Zion, which where does Zion come from, Jay? Do you know? I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I'm pretty sure it is just like it's it's the well, the promised land, the um, heaven, I think is the way it's used. Okay. So that's also a term that comes out of Judaism, which like you've heard of Zionism and the Zionist movements and things like that. You know, that's all related back to Israel. Um, But Zion is used in a Rastafarian context to refer to Ethiopia specifically, or even more broadly to Africa um, as a heaven on earth. And that's typically when we're talking about Ethiopia. Um, Okay. So I Googled it and it has, Yes. Two meetings for Jews. It's the Hill of Jerusalem, where the city of David was built, and then in Christianity, okay. it's the Kingdom of Heaven. Okay. Also, side note. So, so this, see, there we have like this overlap with Christianity yeah. there too. So. Also, side note: um, Independence, Missouri, is considered Zion in the Mormon faith. But we'll talk about that. You are in correct. A later episode. We will talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> because Jesus, when he comes back to back to Earth, he wants to come back to Independence. Yes. The land of Truman. Read the sarcasm. (laughs) And I think a lot of this like difference in definition comes from the fact that like it is really like when we say this is not centrally organized, like it is the least centrally organized. I guess we can take a second and talk about um, where some of these beliefs come from and kind of some of this overlap between Christianity and Judaism. So Rastas use a Bible. It is sort of like the Christian or Protestant Bible, um, 
but it's called the Holy Pibby, um, subtitled the Black Man's Bible. Um, it was created in the 1920s. So we're talking back around the same time. We're talking about Marcus Garvey and the roots of Rastafarianism. Um, this guy, Ra- Robert Atheley Rogers, he was from Anguilla, which is, uh, which is an island in the Caribbean. Um, and he was creating his own Afrocentric religion, which I can't remember the name of, and I don't have it in my notes. Um, but so in doing that, he sort of selectively edits, I think is a good way to put it, okay. maybe. Um, of He selectively edits the Protestant Bible um, to be more relevant to black folks in the Caribbean and specifically within his own religious context. And Rastafarians get a hold of this in Jamaica and start to sort of use it as their sort of sole scripture or their like most important written work. And so it's still used today as a Bible is used, you know, for, you know, any other Christians. And the one thing like you were saying before is that there's really this emphasis on literal interpretation. Um, and so like you, you had mentioned, you found some stuff on like the incredibly patriarchal gender roles. Yes. Um, among Rastas. And that, I think, comes from that sort of literal interpretation. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so a lot of things come out of this Bible, apart from the gender roles. Um, Like this this idea that you shouldn't cut your hair, that you should have dreadlocks, which we'll find later isn't necessarily the same across the board with all these different denominations, which we'll talk about. Um, But also, like... Jews, um, Rastas typically have or typically follow a pretty strict set of dietary um, guidelines. And basically what these come down to is that you avoid food that has been chemically modified or contains any sort of additives, which basically comes down to a very strict vegetarian diet. Yes. Natural and organic are preferred. Locally grown is preferred. Right. But the strictest of Rastas it's like totally processed food free so this means no canned food no refined flours or sugars nothing with additives and not even salt some of the more the i guess the less strict will eat some meat and fish mm-hmm. but the fish has to be under 1 foot long because fish that are over a foot long are considered predatory and therefore um you can't eat them because this is an essential trait of Babylon, in which this case it was Babylon would be white people. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder, like, you know more about kosher than I do, I think. Okay. Because um, keeping kosher isn't, isn't necessarily vegetarian. No, you don't have to be vegetarian to, you can be a meat eater. In fact, I think most people who, uh, who do keep kosher are meat eaters. Right. You just can't um, and so eat that's, meat and dairy at the same time. At the same time, right. And so that's where, you know, Rastas in some way are a little more strict than kosher. Yes. Or than Jews who keep kosher. Yes. Um, I think it's, my guess it's probably because so much of, the emphasis for them is about the diet itself, but natural, organic, and away from processed food and so much of meat is not good even like organic right like 
So my guess mm-hmm. is that they're just trying to avoid that in general. And they right. so that's yeah. why they don't eat it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to get organic meat in the United States. I can't imagine it's easy and accessible yeah. in Jamaica. Uh, and, and so in talking about like the kosher, so a lot of them subscribe to the food laws of the ancient Hebrews, which is found in Leviticus 11. And this means avoiding pork, fish without scales, and crustaceans. On the flip side, though, herbs are really important. Um, So ganja, a.k.a. marijuana, the most important. Ganja is used in food as a spice, a tea, a medicine, and then it's obviously smoked both casually and ritually. Uh, Interestingly enough, though, although they are avid users of cannabis, they're totally against all drugs and alcohol. But the rationale for cannabis is that it's seen as an herb from God for your well-being. And some people kind of describe it as a form of the Eucharist. Yeah, I was, a lot of what I read describes it as somewhat sacramental yeah. um, with that language. I do want to go back, though, real quick to talk about the dreadlocks. Kind of the significance of them is this is a reclaiming of African beauty and both textured hair, which is the opposite of European beauty standards. There is the naturalness and lack of artificiality, which is associated with Babylon. And for many, like the symbol of Rastafari movement is the lion. And a lot of people that believe that when you have dreadlocks, you are invoking the mane of a lion. And through this, you exude both confidence and strength, which is a contrast to most images of Black people in the West, where they are seen as backwards and weak. Um, and then there's also the final kind of rationale for this is that it's connection to the divine. And um, there's this idea that like God is everywhere and the dreadlocks, the, and there's also this, this thing called the earth force. And so dreadlocks help you tap into the earth force and therefore this, they transmit the force directly to you and because that force is the transmitted to you, you are then able to connect directly with God. So it's it, it actually has a function in helping you reach oneness with God. So why don't we talk a little bit about these houses or denominations that we've been alluding to? Cool. Um, and I'll say that houses comes from, uh, I think this is in the New Testament, where it says that uh, something about like, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Oh. And so that's, and so this idea of mansions is where the houses come from. But oh. these are actually, you, in any other place, you would call them sects or denominations of the faith. Um, so the first is the house of Nabingi, and this was formed out of the militant beliefs of the 1940s youth. This is probably the most orthodox and conservative um, component of Rastafari. Uh, they believe that Black Jesus is real um, and is the Messiah who, who returned, being Rastafari. They're vegan. They avoid all politics. They are adamant about dreadlocks. Uh, Also, I will say that um, in order to be considered a Rastafari, you must believe that Holly Celeste 
is the Messiah who returned. If you do not have that fundamental belief, then you are therefore not a Rastafarian. Um, they believe that reggae is a bastardization of Rasta music. Therefore, Bob Marley was a traitor of the Rastas to Babylon. And although their name comes from an African queen, the irony is that they're incredibly patriarchal. They're also the largest group of practicing uh, Rastafarians. The second group uh, is the Bobo Shanty or Bobo Dreads, and they were founded by Prince Emmanuel Edwards. They are most known for wearing turbans around their dreadlocks, and often they wear white. Not always, but a lot of times that's kind of what they're most known for. They live on uh, communes. Uh, They believe not only was Rastafari a living God King, but that Edwards himself is Christ or the high priest. And they also believe that Marcus Garvey is a prophet. And so this is the new Trinity. Those three create the new Trinity for them. Uh, Men are conducted into two groups or categorized into groups, sorry. Um, There's the priest who conduct weekly weekly religious rites and services. And there are prophets who engage in reasoning, uh, which is uh, searching for consciousness, conversation through consciousness. to explore greater understanding of the principles of Rastafari. And I should also say reasoning involves you smoke marijuana and then through talking with other uh, people and asking certain questions, you're supposed to be able to reason your way through it. And that's how you gain consciousness and connect with God. Uh, They live an incredibly frugal lifestyle that is based on subsidence farming and they make brooms to sell. That's kind of what they're known for. They pray several times a day um, and attend nightly services where they, uh, in their meeting yard of the commune, they fast at least twice a week and they observe the Sabbath services in a temple that they have on their commune. Um, Sabbath services are lengthy, involve drumming, ritual smoking of the ganja, singing and Bible readings. And then the high priest will generally give a sermon in the style of a running commentary on the Bible versus read aloud by another priest. They are incredibly patriarchal in the sense that they follow the Bible very closely. So um, first, they believe that women are distracting to men's spiritual pursuit, and therefore women are kind of put in the background of society. And their main purpose in life is to raise children and do domestic chores. Their clothing must cover their arms, legs, and heads at all times when they're in the presence of men. Mm -hmm. And because not only are they seen as distraction, but they are also deemed impure due to their menstrual cycle. And so because they are perceived as impure, they are never allowed to cook food that is intended for men to eat. And... um, not only do they have to be separated from men during menstruation, um, but they have to, several days before their period starts, they have to go into seclusion. And then they are only allowed, it's like several days before, during their cycle, and then um, how many days? A few days after. So they several days after and also for three months after they give birth so i think i saw it calculated that in total they only spend like 12 nights of the month 
in the presence of men. The rest of it, they are in a secluded part of the community where only women are allowed and they take care of each other. So for the longest time, they only lived in this compound in uh, Jamaica. But now people live outside of the commune and some have, especially since their leader died, and uh, they've actually built communes outside of Jamaica. And for ironically, for the longest time, uh, or at least since the 1990s, I should say, most reggae artists have been members of this house. Next, there is the House of the Twelve Tribes of Israel. Excuse me. This was founded in 1968 by Vernon Carrington, who claimed to be the re- reincarnation of God and one of the Twelve Sons of Israel. Uh, he was famous for being kind of elusive and not really saying what people had or had had to do. So one of the characteristics of this house is that dreadlocks are optional. Um, but it's he believes, or it's believed by his followers, that he was reading the Bible when God asked him to reunify the lost tribes of Israel. And so the followers of this house are assigned one of the houses or to one of the 12 tribes. And the tribes are Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, uh, Iskar, Zebulon, Dan, Gad, Asher, Nepalthi, Joseph, and Benjamin. And you are assigned based on the month you were born. Uh, and so that that's what that's how you get sorted. And then you are given a a characteristic which is associated with your month, and a, a certain body part is considered to be the strongest body part. And that's also based on the month that you were born. This is the house that Bob Marley was a part of. And during until the 90s, this was the house that most reggae artists were a part of. But then once the 90s came around, they switched to Bobo Shanty. They are also um, the kind of the only real requirement that they have, I guess, is to read a chapter of the Bible every day. And they're also known as the Christian Rastas because they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and that Rastafari was a mere human, and but a divine king who fulfilled the biblical prophecy. So in the line of David, that's what they believe. Uh, most of the, notably, most of the followers of this group are middle class, and they believe that salvation is open to all. So they accept followers from different faiths, and a vast majority of people who are not black, who identify as Rastafari, are typically in this house. And those, those three, so the 12 tribes of Israel, Bobo Shanti, and um, Naya Bengi, those are the most popular um, and the oldest houses. And then the two newest ones um, are the Fulfilled Rastafari. Their origins are unknown, but it, they've actually been really popular through the internet. They mostly have membership in the West, most being U.S. and England. They also believe that dreadlocks are optional. They believe that God wants humans to live in harmony with nature. Uh, they believe that Rastafari was a man, and they try to follow his teaching, the teach, his teachings. So his speeches and writings are sources of inspiration for them, and often read aloud. And when people have questions that they are pondering, they look to his speeches and writings. And one of the tenets of this house is a very strong commitment to peace, justice, and tolerance in the human family. There's a church of Haile Selassie. Uh, this was organized by Abuna Fox, 
in conjunction with the Imperial Ethiopian World Federation, is basically run like a church. Most every other house is that there's loose leadership. The community kind of decide like there's certain things they believe and do, but like the community is very, I guess it's egalitarian in some ways. This place is run like a church. There is a hierarchy of different positions. They have weekly services. They have Sunday schools. It's probably the most Western form of, uh, or I guess most influenced by the West and Christianity in terms of houses in the Rastafari movement. And the way that they look at Haile Selassie is the same way that Christians venerate Christ in churches. Um but they've also tried to make theirs more mainstream. So part of the reason why they run like a church is because they think it's important to provide service. So because it's run like a church and it it doesn't seem different or weird, uh, Fox and several others have been able to serve as chaplains, particularly in New York prisons. Right on. So I think that's why that was part of their inspiration is so that they could be seen as quote-unquote legitimate by other right. people and therefore they could minister um so nyabingi is not just the name of a house it's also a type of ritual practice um oh, and yeah. so what nyabingi is among the different types of liberty or practices is a dance that's held on special occasions throughout the year um so some of these special occasions include like Haile Selassie's coronation, Haile Selassie's birthday. And they actually give him two birthdays. They give him like his actual like birthday, like the day he came out of his mother. And then they give him this separate birthday, which is like a sort of religious birthday, which I'm not sure if it's somehow related to um, his baptism into uh, Ethiopian Orthodoxy or what that is, but also includes like Garvey's birthday, things like that. Um, And where it comes from is the same place that um, the name for um, the house comes from, which is, um, this woman whose name is Mohamusa, who's a 19th century Ugandan freedom fighter. Um, and so she was fighting against, um, whichever European country colonized Uganda in the 19th century. It was probably Belgium because like Belgium colonized like most of Africa. Um, but she was reportedly possessed by a legendary Ugandan and Rwandan queen whose name was Nyabingi. And so, that's where this name comes from. And what these what these dances are is basically they're held at night and they include different kinds of drumming and chanting and prayers, also songs, marijuana again. And then food is a really important um, aspect of this too. Um, and a part of Nyabingi also is these, these specific drum beats. They're called Nyabingi drum beats. Um, and they kind of, if you go and listen to them like on YouTube and stuff, they kind of sound like a heartbeat and these beats carry over into a lot of ska and rock steady and reggae songs, which ska and rock steady are two genres that started in Jamaica and sort of gave rise to reggae. Um, basically you had ska, it was a faster beat and then it slowed down a little bit for rock steady and then it slowed down even more for reggae is essentially how that happened. Um, but this is one of the more important sort of ritual practices for um, Rastas. The other ones are called groundings and reasoning, which these are groundings are bigger discussions with 
sort of like-minded individuals. Basically, you get together and kind of talk about being a Rasta. And reasoning is sort of similar. I don't know if you found a clear difference between the two. I just found that reasoning is almost always associated with smoking marijuana, whereas whereas groundings are not necessarily. Yeah, so my understanding is that grounding is... Uh, is smoking together, it's talking and dancing with other Rastas. So grounding is like more of a communal thing and reason like the whole community can come for a grounding. Right. Whereas reasoning you might just do with like two or three people. And it's maybe not as ritualistic, I guess. It's more, I, mean, I guess there are Well, it's involved. more like it's more laid back, I guess. Less formal. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then and also I, I think I definitely think that grounding is maybe bigger. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to make assumptions <laughs> or conjecture here. Um. So I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to talk about particularly. Yeah, I will say though about um the the, the grounding and, and reasoning. So there are some slight rituals. Uh. So the there's a thing called a spliff, which I'm sure many people who are what's um, a spliff, Jay, <laughs> who are uh, aware of marijuana, are aware of is, marijuana. But it's you a large said that so nicely. I don't want to say you smoke <laughs> weed, but are you aware of marijuana? <laughs> um, so that people, was perfect, so it's basically yeah. a, a large cigar-looking uh, cigar roll, and this is what's used in group sessions. But when you are just reasoning or grounding by yourself. Then you will use a chalice, which is also known as a bong, and um, or maybe if there's just like a few people, then you might light the chalice and like you know two or three people. In the most strict uh, Rasta communities, women can't smoke with men, and I I believe it's in the Bobo Shanty. Um, women aren't really allowed to smoke at all, but women who have are past. Uh, menopause are allowed to light the chalice interesting uh for the men okay yes well i'm forever calling bonks chalices i mean that's that's like the official name and there are rituals associated with it but yeah because at first i was like chalice is a cup but okay um, i mean bonks have water in them uh, they do yeah yeah that's um that's fair but yeah are you aware of marijuana is a chalice (laughs) I mean, I know it exists. Uh, so, yes. Okay, so I wanted, So there's that. And then the two things, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the language that they've created, okay. just because I think it's interesting. Yeah. So I guess like there are several names for this, but the one that I found is called Dread Talk. And so this was a language that was developed in rejection of the oppressor's English, and it's seen as more honest and more honest by being less deceptive. So there was a linguist who kind of comp- – in this book that – and I'll put this in the show notes. I, I read a, sh- a very short history of Rastafarianism, which it was so in-depth. It gave me all this information. But in that there was uh, – I think it's a linguist that's quoted as four key components of a dread talk. And so the first is the creation of new I words and expressions. So for instance, Irie means good or fine. Um, so if – Ryan, you're like, how are you today? I would just be like, Irie. Uh, I man means I in the singular or me. You could also use it as my. 
And then when I'm talking about we or you and I, I would use I and I. There's also the second component is the replacement of the initial syllable of words just with the letter I. So for instance, vital becomes idle. I read uh, for positive feelings or vibrations. Um, M entity for unity. And then there's the irator and iration, which mean creator and creation. The third component is uh, investing of English or Patois words with specific Rastafarian meanings. So for instance, forward now means to leave or go because you are moving forward. Um, seen means yes, or I agree, or I perceive what you're saying because I can I see what you're saying. So it has been seen. And then reason can mean talking or discussed. It's also reasoning is the ritual, the sacred ritual of smoking marijuana and, you know, making connections with God through asking questions. And then the first, the fourth component, sorry, is the replacement of some syllables that are considered to be contrary to the meaning of the words. Uh, and this is often based on their sounds to make it seem more appropriate or make more sense. So for instance, oppressed, because Although it's OP, it sounds like UP up. And, and so then said they say down press because when you oppress someone, you're really pushing them down in a sense. Uh, dedicate because dead has that first syllable of, even though it's D E D, it sounds like dead, which is a negative connotation. So dedicate is then turned to livicate or understand is considered negative because it's the first syllable is under, so instead they change it with overstand. And so these are just some of the components and ways that this entire language has been created that people talk to themselves, or amongst themselves, rather. And then um, the second thing that I wanted to talk about was the role of women and how they have kind of been treated. So by all accounts, from the very beginning, women had always been involved in the movement. They were initially a minority. Uh, the first two years or so of the movement, or I think it's supposed to be the first 20 years or so of the movement, there doesn't seem like there were any specific gender roles. So by all accounts, women, or at least it's, it's, it seems to be that women were allowed to participate in all rituals, forms of community, community building. They were just like, there was really no difference between men and women. That is no longer the case. Again, starting with the House of Youth Black Faith and other radicals in the 40s and 50s, there was a shift in how women were perceived. A lot of it is connected to this idea that women are impure because of their menstrual cycle. Um, and then the idea that they are distraction. And so therefore, women will guide you away from your connection with Jah. Uh, the irony is, is that so much of this movement is based on breaking free from oppression. And yet... They are incredibly oppressive right. towards women. So that's what I have about women. I know that you want to talk about reggae. Reggae, I think, for a lot of folks who don't know anything about Rastafarianism, is somewhat synonymous with Rastafarianism. Um, but in fact, it actually isn't necessarily. It was actually a Jamaican genre of music before it became super popular um, and associated with Rastafarianism by Bob Marley. And so the music scene in Jamaica in the 50s and 60s is really kind of interesting. 
Um, I watched a really cool documentary about Jamaican music that I'll link in the show notes that's on YouTube. But basically what happened was a lot of Jamaican music was just covers of uh, Motown songs. And so what would happen is you'd have these local Jamaican bands that would cover a Motown song and then give it sort of a Jamaican flair. And what they would do is they would put the emphasis on different beats and they would um, change the melodies a little bit. And that's kind of where ska comes from. Ska rises out of this sort of cover band thing that's going on with uh, Motown songs in Jamaica. And they had these these uh, gatherings that were called sound systems, which were kind of like clubs, but they were open air and they were in basically in neighborhoods and your prestige as a DJ at a sound system was based on whether or not you had good new music. And the way they would get good new music is they would either have these cover bands record songs, or it started out as you would go work out in the sugarcane fields for the day, but you really weren't so much worried about making money doing, um, you know, working on the sugarcane plantation. You were more worried about buying new albums from the white guys who worked at the white American guys who worked at these sugarcane plantations. And so you have this development of ska and then rock steady kind of moves out of that. And like I said before, you know, it's just kind of, they slow down the tempo a little bit, change up the beats. Um, and then ska sort of takes off in, or is really heavily marketed towards mm working class, white working class folks and Jamaicans living in Great Britain. And then reggae sort of develops out of this. And this is where Bob Marley comes in. So in 19, um, in 1966, when Haile Selassie comes and visits Jamaica, of the thousands of people that were there to meet him at the airport, Bob Marley's girlfriend was there. And she's really moved by this experience, goes home to Bob, and he basically converts to Rastafarianism then and there and starts writing his music. And if you listen to uh, his songs, now knowing what you know and having listened to me and Jay ramble about Rastas, um, you'll pick up a lot of you should be able to pick up a lot of language and a lot of themes that are in his music that you may not have realized were there. Um, and one song, which this is my favorite Bob Marley song, it's War. It's off of Rasta Man Vibration, the, the album Rasta Man Vibration. And the song is all about um, black people being oppressed. And, you know, until I think there's a line in there. Um, that there won't be peace until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than color of his eyes. Well, I've loved this song for a long time, but as I was doing the research for this song or for this episode, I learned that whole chunks of that song are actually verbatim lines from a speech Haile Selassie gave. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of those lines that really I was like, yes, this is a great song and I love what it's saying and all of this were lines that come directly from Haile Selassie, which I thought was really oh, cool. Wow. Um, but so Bob Marley really becomes synonymous with Rasta because in the late 60s and early 70s, um, he gets shot. And there's a really good um, documentary on Netflix called Who Shot the Sheriff? Um, and it's about who shot Bob Marley and it's all politically involved. And that's a whole nother story for it whole different day just go watch the documentary it's really good but he ends up um leaving jamaica 
and he goes to the UK. And this is where he records his album Exodus, which is really interesting now that you know he left Jamaica because he's been sort of exiled from Jamaica and it's because of the political structure and because he got shot. Um, and so um, he goes to to the UK and he's he records Exodus. He gets really involved in the local um, Jamaican population. And there was a lot of um, other folks from other from African countries that were living in the UK. Um, and so he gets in with them, records Exodus. And this is how Rasta really sort of takes off on a global scale um, before it had been really sort of secluded to Jamaica and to Ethiopia. And after this, this is where you see people in Great Britain and the United States, because all of a sudden you have this guy who's really popular and very vocal um, talking about Rastafari. And if you go like look at some of his... Um, some of his interviews that he did in the seventies before he died. Um, you can see a lot of the threads of Rastafari belief in the things that he was talking about. Um, but yeah, so Rastafari, so Rastafari, so Bob Marley was super, super religious. Um, but as Jay mentioned earlier, as you mentioned earlier, that, um, some people disagree <laughs> and say that he's sold out to the man. <laughs> yeah. I think there's like a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one is because I mean he was about capitalism. I mean he, he well, I profited off of yeah he made money. Like he yeah. was an artist who was making money. He profited off of it. He was making a right. lot of money, and so he was considered a sellout. Um, and I mean their anti-capitalism. His whole career was capitalism, right? Um, right. So I think that's part of it. To be fair, to be fair though, um, he dies in 1981. And his most successful album, Legend, comes out in 1984. Um, and it's basically like his greatest hits album. It's like the album that all white people who like think they know about Bob Marley listen to. I'm going to be a music snob for a second, but yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you want to talk shit on white people, I will let you do that. <laughs> Let it be known it was the white man who did that. <laughs> um, so, I think, so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that he, so he was part of the, tel- the 12 tribes. Which right. um, I think the most orthodox Rastas have a little bit of an issue with. And I think when Bob Marley converted, people were like, okay, we'll tolerate you. We were like skeptical about the 12 tribes, but like you seem to be a believer. It's all cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he becomes more popular, I think the fact that he was a part of the 12 tribes also really was held against him because they are one of the most lenient. They let other people who aren't black um into the movement. So I think that was kind of held against him. The third thing is that one of the key components about reggae is that it not only incorporates Nyabingi rhythms, but it mm-hmm. totally appropriates Rastafarian chants. So there are a yeah. lot of reggae songs, which is literally a quote unquote reggae beat, but the words are Rastafarian chants that have been chanted for decades at Nyabingi celebrations. And so people who are Rasta artists would just go listen and take those words and then make a song out of it. And Bob Marley was notorious for this. Mm-hmm. You could argue that he was just putting the words of his faith into a song. And so that makes it okay. But um, I think that he really profited off of these sacred chants that were shared. I mean, he's not the only one, but I think because he becomes so famous, 
I think that people really had a problem with that because it's like, why are you taking this part of our community that we share amongst ourselves? And you not only are you like sharing it with the world, but you're making lots of money mm-hmm. from this thing that is sacred to us. So I think that's kind of why he was not seen like you've seen as a traitor um by some of the most orthodox i will say totally not related but side note but his song um rasta man chant the and this is something that's also popular in rasta or reggae music sorry is that they take as you said like motown songs but they take Mm -hmm. like gospel songs and change them into something with a Rastafarian context. So Rastaman chant is really the gospel all fly away. You could look it up or it is one of the interludes in Kanye West's first album, The College Dropout, which Ooh. I feel kind of bad for like, I know, Kanye right. West can we, this can we talk about like, that? Yeah. <laughs> since he's definitely kind of like crazy you know, now, a traitor to Babylon, but oh, um, nice. <laughs> but if if you like if you just look up I'll fly away and that actually may not be the uh, but if you look like I'll fly away and then you listen to the Rasta Man chant like it is crazy how similar they are and I mean it's the same song the words have just been changed uh, and and a reggae beat has been put to it I guess um, so a lot of Rasta or reggae songs rather are uh, would it be fair to say Negro spirituals I'll just say gospel songs remixed yeah with yeah a I don't know. Rastafari message to a reggae beat. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a really crazy cover of uh John Denver's Country Roads or Take Me Home Country Roads. It's kind of crazy by it's by some ska guys, but it's very reggae in feel. Yeah. So yeah, you should go listen to that if you like Take Me Home Country Roads. If you think you like John Denver, just wait till you listen to a bunch of black guys from Jamaica sing it. So And that's all I have on Rastafari. Do you have anything else? No, that's what I got. Cool. Well, if you like this episode, feel free to write us a comment, rate us on iTunes or your favorite place to get podcasts. I guess I should first say thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing (laughs) to listen. Um, If you want to connect with us, other than writing us a review, you can uh, find us on Twitter at Religious Lit Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. Um, you can email us at religious lit podcast. Is is it podcast or pod? You got it. Yep, you got okay. it. Okay. Religious lit podcast at gmail.com. Um, and go out and find us. Make sure you're subscribed. Tell all your friends to subscribe. Um, especially if you have friends in other countries, tell them yes. to subscribe and listen so we can make more posts. If you're not following us on Twitter, <laughs> If you don't follow us anywhere else, follow us on Twitter so you can see mostly Ryan's um, hilarious tweets. <laughs> um, he's really good at the promoting there. I just retweet them. But uh, yeah, check us out on social media. And we do check our email. So if you have yes. suggestions, questions, comments, concerns, you hate us, we'll probably read that on, on the air because we don't have anything else coming to us. Oh, totally. We'll roast ourselves on air. No so, question. Yeah. Let us know what you think. If there are ideas, something that you don't understand, be like, yeah, I really like the track you're going on, but I really like you to do an episode on this. We are totally opening to changing the program that we have. Mm-hmm. So check in with us, rate us, tell your friends, and we will check you next time.